Welcome everybody to another edition of Soccer and Snow and Smoke, the soccer podcast from ESPN Missoula. I'm Andrew Houghton. I know we haven't been on the airwaves with a bunch of soccer and snow and smoke recently. It's been a busy season. What with basketball season winding down, high school winter sports seasons winding down. But today on this edition, got a guest that I'm very excited for with a great Montana connection. If you watch the United States men's soccer team's games, if you've been to a United States men's soccer team game, you've probably seen this guy. They know him as Eagle Man, and he's always in the stands with his Eagle costume. Probably the U.S. MNT's biggest super fan. He's Mark Cranston, and here's the Montana connection. Mark, who's traveled all around the world supporting the U.S. soccer team, He grew up in Frenchtown, right around Missoula, so one of my connects at Missoula Strikers got me in touch with him. I said, of course I'd love to have you on the podcast, man. Mark, thanks for being here. Thanks for doing it. Sure, sure, Andrew. Uh, Thanks for inviting me, and uh, thanks for that intro. I never would have imagined what uh, 40-some years ago, uh, being a kid in uh, Frenchtown, that I would uh, have an intro like that uh, down the road. You got it, man. That's what I wanted to talk to you about because when we first got in touch, you were talking about your early days in Frenchtown. And we'll talk about how the Eagle Man persona got started because that's I'm sure that's a super great story. And I'm sure you've got a lot of great stories from traveling to all these different games. But you're just a kid in Frenchtown a, a little while ago, some decades ago. How did you get into the game? Sure, sure. You know, um, yeah, when I grew up uh, in the 70s and uh, early 80s, uh, the, really the only outlet was in Missoula was YMCA soccer. And uh, there was no high school soccer uh, for sure. And so Frenchtown was just uh, the usual, you know, in the fall it was football, in the winter it was basketball, and in the spring it was baseball. And uh, in, in 1979, I had a friend who was a, you're younger than me, and he happened to be driving in uh, to the YMCA league. And he said, you know, what do you think? Uh, you want to play soccer? And I never even thought about soccer. Didn't know that much about it. And uh, just uh, by chance signed up. And uh, I think that would have been my uh, spring of my seventh grade uh, year. I started driving in to um, Missoula and playing on a YMCA league. Then. And that was the start. Just give everybody a little background on on how, you know, this all got started and how you decided. I mean, I, do people call you Eagle Man? Did how did that start? How many games do you yeah, go that's... to? Um, and and what's what that has been like? Because I, I'm telling you, if you've if you watch the United States Men's National Team, you've seen Mark on the sideline. But like, how did you come up with the costume? How did that all How did that all come about? Yeah, it's a, a long way from Frenchtown. I can t- tell you uh, a little bit more eventually about uh, kind of my background uh, as a fan then. But I was a, a big fan for just a couple of years during the NESL years. And then, um, you know, kind of had a lapse there and, and started following the national team probably in the 1990 uh, World Cup. And uh, I was a uh, first-year medical student in Portland. And I remember that year um, – I didn't know that much about the World Cup at that time, but the U.S. was in it. And, uh, and I had uh, pathology, cytology was the last class of the year. And uh, we had 
all this time at home and uh, uh, looking at slides under the microscope. And that was my worst grade of the whole year. I barely, barely squeaked by because I was spending all my time watching the, uh, the, the World Cup. And so then 94 came around and uh, my wife and I, it was a first year of residency. And uh, we were going to go to a couple games. I had one week off, just happened to be the week of the, um, the World Cup. And uh, she ended up getting really sick that week. And, uh, and we found out she was pregnant just days before. And so, uh, so we missed the 94 World Cup. But uh, we've been to every World Cup since. And so I uh, just became, you know, huge fans going to, going to as many games as we could. And uh, she decided that uh, at the end of a Halloween party uh, before the World Cup in Brazil, that she was going to wear her Wonder Woman costume to the World Cup in Brazil. And I said, well, that, that, that's good. Uh, <laughs> you know, she wasn't going to talk me into uh, dressing up into anything like that, I, I didn't think. Um, and so I just, I held off, held off. And by the spring, she was still saying, I'm going to wear this. You got to come up with something. You got to come up with something. And so I had this idea that, you know, nobody's ever worn an eagle costume that scene and I'd be wearing a mask so nobody would know who I was anyway. And uh, so that was the, that was the start, the first game in Brazil. And I can tell you, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't until just minutes before uh, we had to leave the hostel. We were in a little hostel and uh, had a single room there. And I walked out into the common room and I was still carrying my, my wings and carrying my mask. And I still wasn't sure I was going to put that on. But uh, we, you know, got in, got in the cab, went down uh, about a mile from the stadium. I still thought I had a little bit of time left before I'd have to actually jump out of the cab. And the, and the uh, driver stopped. He said, we can't, can't go any further. And we were just in a gas station parking lot. And so we jumped out. Uh, wife's already in full costume. I kind of ran over in the corner, pulled off my jersey, put my wings under the jersey, put the mask on, turned around. And we had like a, a crowd already, you know, people, uh, all the Brazilians that worked at the gas station and the people that were there, hey, can we get a picture, get a picture. And so it was just so much fun. And we've had a chance to meet so many people over the years. But, uh, yeah, that was the start. What a great origin story. I want to know what's up with the costume. Like, how much does it weigh? Is it uncomfortable for these full <laughs> games? Like, what, what's been the, the stories about that? You know, we uh, had kind of this store-bought costume. And, uh, and I knew I was going to have to cut the bodysuit in half, um, and, and kind of take out the middle of the wing. So I wasn't going to be so hot down. The first game was actually in Manaus. And that's one of the most common questions I get whenever it's hot out and people say, Oh man, it must be terrible hot in that costume. How do you do it? And I just tell them, you know what? The first game was in Manaus, uh, in the middle of the Amazon. And so, you know, it's been easy from there. Uh, but that was the, the first thing I had to do. And then the other main modification I had to make was uh, the mask was a full face mask. And I knew I was going to have to be able to drink some beer during the game. And so I had to cut out a, a, a hole for the mouth. And then uh, so it ended up being two different masks that I'd found and uh, glued those back together. And uh, that's that's kind of how it started. Uh, my wife, same thing with her Wonder Woman costume has been. Uh, having it modified over over the years, uh, she's actually a image consultant here, uh, kind of well known within the fashion areas of uh, Las Vegas. And so, I actually found a costume designer years ago to help her upgrade her costume and make some changes there. And so, uh, I've had some help as well. Um, and 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 it's taken a, a few 
changes over the years. Uh, and then main thing is just us uptake on the mask and the mask is uh, getting, getting toward the end. So I think we're going to try to get through Mexico in this week, and then it's going to have to go for some major repairs before the world cup itself this, this time around. And how many, how many games have you guys been to since then? I mean, you guys have not missed many, uh, national team games since then. Right. Yeah. So, so since then, and, and, uh, you, that happened to be the year that I actually retired from the air force. Um, and so, uh, since then I worked as a contractor and then, uh, the civilian job I have now has, um, a lot of freedom, uh, you know, not on call all the time or, uh, you know, uh, having a clinic practice to manage and all. And so, uh, it's given us a lot more freedom so that, um, pretty much now, um, 90% of the men's games, I get to those. My wife probably, you know, about 75% or so. But uh, I just hit uh, last October my 100th men's national team game. Um, so that was kind of a milestone for myself. That's incredible. That's when, when Mark and I started talking. And this is Mark Cranston, famous United States men's national team fan, the Eagle Man, who grew up in Frenchtown, joining us. But when Mark and I first got started talking about this, that was just, I thought, the most incredible part of it, the travel and, and getting to see all of those incredible games. Mark, what, what's been your best stories from that period? I mean, games that you remember, goals that you remember, plays that you remember, or just some crazy stuff that happened to you? So, the you know, and, and well before we even started, uh, you know, dressing up in costumes and stuff, um, going to games. So my first national team game was in 98 and that was uh, in the Coliseum uh, in LA uh, in the gold cup final against Mexico. And so I walked right into, <laughs> you know, something I had no idea what, what, what it was going to be like. I, I, I thinking back then, I don't know if I even wore, I think I wore like a red, white and blue shirt maybe, but nothing with stars and stripes or anything like that. Walked in all by myself. And uh, just, uh, you know, amazing experience. Um, um, you know, hardly any U.S. fans in the stadium and uh, just green everywhere. I, I, I walked into the, I remember ha- walking into halftime and uh, into the restroom and there were, the, you know, a group of guys in green jerseys in the kind of the corner kind of hiding themselves by the urinals. And no kidding, uh, <laughs> the bags were, the baggies were being filled up there. And so, uh, you know, it was kind of an, uh, uh, an amazing first game. And from there, it's just been so many different games. We're going down to Mexico uh, to the Azteca here uh, next week. And so I'll be going down, you know, to think that it went from that game in 98 to, you know, wearing a full-on Eagle costume in their stadium uh, and, and to have, you know, almost no fans in uh, L.A. to, you know, a situation now where, we have a, a huge group of uh, American fans going down for the game. Uh, there's been, you know, all the away supporter tickets that we have are all sold out. Guys are going crazy today and yesterday and tomorrow as these uh, sales are opening up for the sa- the tickets in Mexico. And uh, we're, you know, trying to get as many of the guys in the stadium with those tickets as well. So one of the big things is just seeing that fan base grow over the years. Um, as well as some of the amazing games that we can talk about as well, yeah. As Mark is alluding to, last set of World Cup qualifiers for the U.S. men's national team coming up next week. A little bit of a nerve-wracking time to be a United States men's national team fan. We'll talk about those a little bit later. 
Mark, I wanted to go back to the beginning a little bit here, and you talked about growing up in Frenchtown, and the only outlet was sort of, the only place to play was YMCA soccer in Missoula. What were some of your experiences as a fan back then just trying to get into the game where, like you mentioned, it was football, basketball, baseball, or, or track maybe in the spring, but not a lot of soccer, and of course, MLS wasn't a thing back then. I imagine it was pretty difficult. You didn't have all the European leagues on TV in the United States the way that you do now. What was that like, and, and sort of how have you seen the game grow since since back then, especially in America and even just in Montana? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so back then, you know, um, my experience as a fan was probably just uh, – uh, you know, because of just the determination I had. And for whatever reason, I was just drawn to soccer. And so um, I was able to, first of all, there was Soccer Digest, get this uh, uh, kind of like Archie comic size magazine in the mail once a month. Uh, I don't even think it was probably maybe nine months, eight months out of the year, something like that. And uh, in the back of the Missoulian every morning, you'd be able to run out and you know if the nasl had games the day before it would just be a little box score with the you know the the standings maybe maybe once a week the standings were there otherwise it was just listed as the scores there um but i could get on clear nights uh through the radio i could get two main channels and and one was uh komo in uh seattle so i could listen to the sounders and um and then another was actually out of san francisco and they had what was the ASL, which was the kind of rival league uh, to the NASL. And the San Francisco Fog uh, was, was the team there. And so that was my, my, you know, there was maybe two games or something like that on uh, regular TV. There was no cable or anything back then. But it was really on the radio. And I, one of my biggest, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about my autograph collection, but I used to write for autographs and, uh, you know, that was the other kind of connection that you'd have to professional fans. But I remember one night um, I was sitting there listening to the San Francisco game and, uh, you know, I was about ready to fall asleep. And, and, and all of a sudden they came on and said, you know, we want to thank uh, one of our long range fans, uh, Mark Cranston from Frenchtown, Montana, who wrote to Ian Philby, one of the, uh, their captain, one of the best players there. And, uh, you know, and said, oh, you know, thanks for sending, you know, being a fan all the way out in Montana, listen to our games, and uh, we'll be sending you, you know, autographs and, uh, uh, you know, tickets to games like I could <laughs> get to San Francisco to see a game. Um, but, but it was, that was, I mean, that was amazing to, you know, hear yourself being called out that far away. But that was how I, I followed soccer was uh, through the radio uh, back then. When did you see it start to switch and start to pick up steam? And I know this this might be the answer for you, but you talked a little bit about the 1994 World Cup that was in the United States, and I know a lot of people point to that event as sort of a flashpoint as to when soccer fandom really started to take off, but maybe it was before that for you. But when did you start to, to see other people maybe getting into it on the level that you were or start to find that community or start to think that that changed a little bit? Yeah, as far as U.S. fans, um, there's there's a couple points that I, I always uh, think of when I think of really really a change because, you know, the the um, in, in looking at the World Cup because um, we've slowly kind of built where and real slowly, very slowly, um, built where you know we'll have fans at home 
but seeing fans to travel and fans to go to the World Cup has been, been you know, uh, a lot different. So in 98, there were just a few of us outside of a train station, you know, waiting to um, kind of, I guess you'd call it a tailgate. Um, and then um, in 2002, it's kind of the same thing in uh, South Korea uh, for the games there. There weren't many people around. But in 2006, um, in Germany, uh, we got on the train to go from, from the downtown out to the stadium, and it was packed with American fans. And we started you know, singing on the train. There were a lot of Czech fans along the way trying to get onto the train, and the train was completely packed, so they couldn't even get into the, the cars. And, uh, and so that, that was one point that I always think, you know, wow, you know, things, things are changing. Uh, we actually, you know, have a, a presence as away fans. And then um, the next game was the game against Italy. And that was uh, the game where we had uh, the red cards. Uh, we ended up tying against Italy, kind of violent game. And uh, in the second half, we were down right behind the goal. And they brought all of the riot police away from the Italian fans who were just sitting in the stadium and, and put them in front of the American fans. Not that we were you know, going to do anything, but we were the rowdy fans in the stadium. And so those two uh, moments in 2006 at the World Cup were times that I look back and I say, wow, you know, uh, things are really changing. And then, you know, we did see significant fans in 2000. Uh, 10 and then uh, 2014 uh, from the United States traveling. And so um, that's kind of that early 2000s is when we, I think we really started building a, a, a solid um, supporters uh, group and, and, and fans for the United States at that time. Yeah, that's funny. That 2006 World Cup was certainly, for me, definitely the first one that, that I can remember. I was born in 1994. And I don't remember anything about the 2002 edition, but I can clearly remember watching the 2006 World Cup and watching that U.S. game against Italy. And then, of course, the famous final between Italy and France in 2006. And I don't know if I started getting into it right then, but maybe that was where the seed was planted. And then in uh, in 2010 in South Africa and going into 2014 in Brazil, it was just always something that I followed from there so so you might be onto something there with that mid 2010s because that sort of you know follows my experience as well yeah and and, and we're you know you, you, just the supporters groups and the growth of uh, american outlaws um over that that kind of same time period uh the 2010 to 2014 uh time is uh you know just the idea that now there's you know chapters 200 chapter 200 plus chapters across the United States. You can go almost any, you know, semi big town and you're going to have a place to watch a U.S. soccer game if the national team's playing. Um, so that network's been, been important. Um, I think, you know, there has been more exposure on TV since that time. And so, um, yeah, I think those are really the, the time that we've seen changes. And then this cycle, I, th- I know things were down after uh, 2018 and not qualifying. Um, but the demand for the tickets at the games, you know, they sold most of the World Cup qualifier games by ticket lottery um, this time around. Um, and even the away games we had, you know, down in, um, uh, in, well, in Canada, we had, uh, 
you know, a ticket lottery for those tickets. Uh, had to do the same thing in Mexico for the game next week. Um, but, uh, you know, El Salvador, Panama, those games we have had in Jamaica, we've had uh, significant groups of fans following uh, the, the team um, all around now. So it's, it's definitely uh, changed from back in the 90s and early 2000s. We had, um, I was stationed in Germany in 2003, and that was uh, the last time I think, the, well, one of the last times the U.S. played in the Confederations Cup, which was in France. And uh, so my two daughters at that time were probably, I think, like three and six. And so my wife and I and two, two daughters uh, bought tickets for the game against Brazil, and we were there in Lyon uh, for that game. And we were in the away section. I still have the pictures. So there's razor um, <laughs> kind of uh, razor fence around that, that section, uh, but the only people in it as U.S. fans were the four of us. Uh, and so, you know, and then now the last time the U.S. was playing in, in Leona was uh, for the Women's World Cup, and we were just, you know, ran all over the city with, uh, with fans at that time. So definitely some changes over time. Definitely. I want to ask you, why do you think that is? And this is uh, maybe a little bit deeper and maybe goes back to your childhood when you got into the game. You said you just fell in love with it. But why is that? I mean, why did you fall in love with it? Why do you think that the pace of growth among American fans has been so rapid in the last, you know, decade or two? Why do you think it sort of speaks to American sports fans? Yeah, and the why is, is I think probably you know about uh, being sort of into a number of the analytics and stuff like that. Um, kind of a, a question I would have too. Um, I, I do think that uh, you know we're seeing more and more, you know, youth soccer um, uh, people. You know, when I grew up in Montana, there was no youth soccer. There, were, you know, other than that, that little YMCA outlet, there was no real organized high school soccer. Um, but we're seeing those guys that, that uh, you know, men and women who were boys and girls, you know, uh, the last generation and playing soccer. And I think um, and it, they've become fans. And, of course, we have now uh, MLS in the United States. Um, I think there's been much more or there has been much more exposure to both World Cup, uh, the U.S. national teams, international games, um, and then, of course, the European games now, too seems like there's just every year the following has increased there. So I know uh, I was on the inaugural fan council for U.S. soccer, and one of the big things that they were looking at at that time was this growth uh, based on age groups. And so if you looked at that, um, this is, you know, five years ago, and I think things are just, uh, if anything, accelerated since then. Um, if you look at your, you know, 20 to 40, 20 to 35-year-old age group, um, there's a, a huge shift in the percentages of people who consider themselves avid fans of soccer versus, say, avid fans of, you know, baseball, which has really declined, um, hockey and even football to a certain extent. Um, so some of it, whatever, you know, was the sort of spark to get those younger people interested um, has, I think, been uh, continued so that you our younger um, people are even more and more fans, and then we're just kind of aging in that group now so that the uh, 30-, 40-year-old group uh, has more and more soccer fans in it. Um, so, yeah, so the why, I'd, I'd 
can't really answer that question. Uh, but the good news is that I think because of the demographics of the fans, it's only going to continue. Well, I think that's exactly right. I, I grew up in the, the D.C. suburbs, I mean, 15 or 20 years ago and playing youth sports. I played baseball. I never really played soccer all that much. But us on the baseball teams, we were sort of the minority back then because a lot of kids were going and playing youth soccer instead, I think because it's a, a little bit less expensive for the equipment. I mean, it's a lot of fun, a lot more running around rather than sure. standing around as compared to something like baseball, really easy to pick up. And, of course, you're going to see – a lot of those kids just become fans of the games as they played it growing up. I wanted to ask you about your experience back playing and playing, uh, like you said, YMCA soccer and, and high school soccer in Missoula at the time that you were growing up. Sure, sure. Yeah, so YMCA soccer was uh, two seasons. So you had uh, a spring and a fall season. And we probably played maybe, you know, eight games, something like that, eight weeks Um uh, maybe you know ten at the most, something something like that. Anyway, and so when you played the, and I I played uh, two years in in high school, uh, two years when I was in middle school, and uh, the middle school games were just kind of the big you know Saturday morning, um, you know a bunch of fields out of Fort Missoula, which was, didn't look anything like it looks now. Uh, but you know a bunch of fields where they painted some lines out there, and you know kids running around not a lot of coaching and, uh, and just a mass of, of, of games and high school soccer was a little different. Um, so you played, uh, so they were pretty much aligned with the schools at that time. And so, um, I was on a Hellgate team and so there were, I think two Hellgate teams, uh, two Sent- Sentinel teams, a big sky team. And, and, and even that there was kind of a little, uh, you know, maybe somebody had a friend that went to the other school and they somehow got assigned to that team. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, we would probably have maybe two practices in a week. Um, I know I, our coach for the two years I was on the, that Hellgate team was a cardiologist. And so he was a super busy guy, had, you know, a little bit of background in soccer. Uh, so he'd always be coming out in his scrubs right after, you know, procedures and work. And, uh, you know, we'd try to run us through some drills for like two nights. And then we played at uh, the old Liola field. And so the big thing there was that there were lights. And so there weren't that many things. Uh, even the, a lot of the uh, high schools uh, did not have lights for the football games. So the fact that we were playing at night uh, as a high school kid, that was a big deal. So we'd have our Thursday, I think it was Thursday nights, because then they would have their uh, football games on Friday uh, out there. I think it was Thursday nights once a week, you'd have a, a high school game and there was, of course, no fans. It was not really, and it was just, you wore a, you know, I think we wore a yellow uh, t-shirt uh, to kind of say that we were from uh, Hellgate, but otherwise we were just, uh, I think the Cosmos wearing a yellow t-shirt that said Dairy Gold uh, <laughs> uh, YMCA League on it. Uh, but uh, nothing like today. I went out uh, probably three years ago or so and kind of retraced some of my roots. And I uh, got a chance to go out and practice with the uh, Frenchtown team out there. And just to see, like, you know, a, a real JV team, a varsity team, um, you know, having regular practices every night, a regular, you know, a coach that knew soccer. Um, and and it's just amazing to see where that's growing. 
from what we were doing back in uh, in the 70s. I figured I'm probably the first ever high school uh, soccer player from Frenchtown because I didn't know anybody ahead of me that went out to the YFCA League. And uh, like I said, I played for a couple of years there uh, before going on and doing cross country and track for my last couple of years. Mark Cranston, retired Air Force doctor, United States men's national team super fan, Montana native, the first high school soccer player ever from Frenchtown, Montana, joining us on the Soccer and Snow and Smoke podcast. And and, and Mark, that's exactly right. What you're talking about a little bit, we've ta- I've talked on this podcast with some of the club coaches from around here, definitely the high school coaches from around here, just at how much it's grown. And I know Missoula Strikers, one of the club's teams celebrating their 40th anniversary this year. Are you surprised at all by how much it's grown in a place like Missoula and in a place like Western Montana? Sure. And I can actually take you back on the Strikers. So we, um, as far as we could tell, and this is, you know, when I was back there a couple of years ago, we were trying to sort things out. And, and from my memory, um, so there was a, a um, up in Kalispell, they had a tournament. And so they decided, and it might have been under 16, maybe, um, under 15, under 16, something like that. And so the Missoula, the YMCA decided they were going to put together a team and send them up to that, uh, that tournament. And so uh, they just kind of selected an all-star team out of the high school um, league there that, that met, you know, the under 16, under 15, whatever it was, age crowd, uh, category. And then they slapped the striker's name on it. And as far as I know, that's the first, we were the first, um, you know, team to ever play as the strikers. Now there were some guys, uh, mainly guys out of Sentinel um, who had trained and kind of had this idea, I think, um, with uh, the coaches that were working with them, that this would, you know, potentially be something more than what the YMCA was. And it would be a sort of a, you know, first kind of club soccer type experience for kids in uh, Missoula. And so they had done some training and I think at least a couple of those guys were older. Uh, so wouldn't have been in, eligible for the, uh, the tournament there. Um, but that's kind of how, you know, what club soccer was or the beginnings of club soccer, I guess, was, you know, some extra practices with the, a guy, you know, with some coaches for a couple guys who were playing on this YMCA league. And then, um, you know, this, this tournament that a few of us just got picked from different teams uh, to put a team together to, you know, grow to now, you know, the big club that, uh, that the strikers are. So, yeah, that's been the evolution uh, over, over what, 40 years, I guess. Right. Thanks, everybody, for listening to part one of our Soccer and Snow and Smoke podcast with Mark Cranston, United States men's national team superfan and Frenchtown native. Part two of our two-part interview, focusing on more of Mark's experiences following the USMNT around the world, as well as what he thinks of this upcoming set of World Cup qualifiers, will air later this week, before the U.S. men's national team's game at Mexico on Thursday. Stay tuned for that, and thank you again for listening.